Last week we saw David, in some respects, sort of burst onto the scene with his defeat of Goliath, the Philistine giant. What a way for him to make his entrance, if you sort of, if you sort of will. While all of Israel's soldiers stood back and cowered in fear, David, little more than a young shepherd boy with uh, no real military experience, boldly faced off against this seasoned military champion, probably two times his size at least in height, probably three times his size in weight, we don't really know for sure. And all he did was with a sling and a stone, took down this giant with the help of God, and we saw that David faced off with Goliath with that conviction that it wasn't through his skill or his abilities, but rather through his dependence on God to deliver him. And we see that in David's life now. David is an individual who isn't perfect. He makes some mistakes, and we'll get to those in our future texts. But um, he had this incredible reliance on his Heavenly Father, and that sort of um, then colors his life, if you will. And we're going to see some of that today. As we start this text today, what we really see is David's rise to fame and prominence among Israel and Saul's, basically, um, descendants into um, uh, disobedience, sin, lack of God's favor. Um, So you see David rise and you see Saul begin to um, diminish. Basically, that happens over the next uh, six or seven chapters. So basically, chapters 18 through 24 is what we'll be covering over the next few weeks. But we're going to look at just chapters 18 and 19 today. And we're going to look at three things. I'm going to use some alliteration today, something I don't often do, but it seems to fit in this particular instance here. So as a good um, homiletic student from seminary, I'm going to use some alliteration today. We're going to look at David's prosperity, we're going to look at David's persecution, and then we're going to look at David's protection. So that'll help you to remember today. Alright, so I'll be a good good homiletic student today and give you some peace to remember. I see David rolling his eyes back there. (laughs) But it works for us today. And what's interesting about this is... I need slides. Yeah, what I actually need is a a big screen TV on this side, a a little round, yeah, YouTube, and a round table next to me here that I can put my Starbucks on, a little bar stool, you know, because that's the way the big churches do it today. But we'll just have to settle for my cheesy alliteration, if that's okay. But what's interesting about this is it kind of parallels, if you will, our existence as Christians. These three things we're going to look at with David here today. So the first is David's prosperity. I want you to look at chapter 18, the first five verses. I'll go ahead and I'll read those and then we'll digest them. It says, Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul, or the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered, and Saul sent him over the men of or set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So what we have here, I believe, is David's prosperity, and there's a number of things I want to point out. The first thing I want us to understand is that these events right here, it gets a little bit weird because not everything in the book of 1 Samuel is presented in um, chronological order. Some things are sort of taken out of order. Some things are a reflection back at a previous time. And these verses, these uh, first five verses, actually take place from a chronological standpoint in the section above, verses 52 through 58, where we see David going out now after he defeated Goliath, 
the Israelites then attacked the um, Philistine armies. And there were some, some campaigns during that time. And so these verses right here in chapter 18 that we're starting actually took place during that time. Because we're going to see here in just a few minutes, David and Saul finally return back home. And that's where the rest of our passage picks up. And so these events right here, this discussion of, of Jonathan and David going out on behalf of Saul, actually took place during the campaign at the end of chapter 17. Okay, that ends at verse 58, and then it sort of jumps down, and you know, sort of these few, first five verses or so are like a reflection back. Okay, so they happened previous to this. But you notice that Jonathan and David had formed this special bond. It describes the um, relationship there as Jonathan's soul being knit together with David. They had a very unique relationship. They were extremely close. Close. Probably the best way to describe them is they were like brothers. They had this amazing bond. It says in verses 1 and 3, twice it says that Jonathan loved David as himself. So it led to the two of them making a rather unique relationship. It's referred to as a covenant. The word covenant is mentioned five times in this passage to describe their relationship. We've talked a little bit about this. I think Steve spent some time helping us understand the concept of covenants. But it it was a way to sort of bind two people together in an obligation, but it involved more than that because covenants are always about relationships. Years ago when I had um, written my book on divorce and remarriage, one of the things that I focus on is the difference between contracts and covenants. You know, contracts sort of spell out what's expected. And oftentimes marriage is looked at in our culture and society is more of a contract. But really it's a covenant because it involves relationship. And so David and Jonathan's relationship is described as a, as a covenant between the two of them. Again, mentioned five times in this text. One of the things that this did was it assured mutual loyalty between these two. And as we, as we look at this covenant between the two of them, we see that it was really Jonathan always, I think four out of the five times that this is mentioned, Jonathan is, Jonathan is the one that initiates the covenant with David. And one of the reasons he does that was because in David's culture and time, when somebody became king, they would wipe out their, anybody that might be a potential rival. Can you think about that for a second? We have Saul, the king, and his son, Jonathan. Who is the, quote, rightful heir to the throne in Israel? Who would that be? Be Jonathan, right? But David is the one that's supposed to become the next king. God's made that abundantly clear, and Jonathan knew that. Well, Jonathan knew that his life would be in danger when David became king because most kings would wipe out any potential heirs from the other family. But Jonathan also knew David and knew David's heart. And so Jonathan initiated a covenant with David, basically recognizing David's role as the future king, but also um, assuring himself that David wouldn't wipe him and his family out. And there's other places in the, in the text here where it describes this covenant. It's mentioned a couple of different times. In fact, later on in the, in the book, Jonathan and David get to see each other one last time and they reconfirm that covenant with one another. And it basically assures that when David becomes king, that he will not wipe out Jonathan and his descendants. And David promises that through this covenant. And so we have two things. We have Jonathan agreeing to protect David from his father, and then we have David agreeing to protect Jonathan in the future, and Jonathan's descendants. As a sign of this covenant, it's kind of interesting. Did you catch in the text what Jonathan actually does? Verse 4. 
It says that Jonathan stripped off his royal robes and his armor and he gave them to David. Why do you think that's important in this text? What do you think that symbolizes? Jonathan is giving up his right to the throne. Takes it all off. And he takes his royal robe, which belonged to the next descendant, the next king, which should have been Jonathan, at least from a worldly standpoint. And he takes that off. And it's his way of recognizing David as the future king. And so he gives him his royal robe, gives him his armor as a symbol, as part of his covenant. Remember, we've talked before about covenants, how there's always some type of a gift or a sign that's given. This is it. This seals their covenant here. So Jonathan and David had this very special bond as part of the prosperity that God had given to Jonathan. Here he is with an amazing relationship with the king's son. He also prospered as a military leader. And in everything else that he did, if you look at verses 2 and 5, it says, Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. This means that Saul took David into his royal family of sorts. He now became one of his inner circle, if you will. He also made him a commander of the military. It says that he trusted him, verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he prospered. So Saul made him a commander. We find a little bit later that he made him a commander of thousands. And so he makes David this military commander on this campaign that we had come to at the end of chapter 17. And it says that David prospered in that role. He was successful as a military commander, which is rather shocking considering David was a shepherd. But he had apparently a keen mind for the military. In fact, um, many individuals, even secular individuals, when they study the scriptures on this, they consider David, whether they believe he existed or not, to be probably one of the, the most brilliant military minds in history, at least in ancient history, because of some of his campaigns and, and what he did. But he obviously had a tremendous amount of success, it tells us. He prospered at that. You look down at verse 5, it also says that um, he was pleasing in all the sight of the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So, he prospered not just at military stuff, but he actually prospered in everything else he did, according to the text. I want to just camp a little bit on this word for prosper here because I think it's important. It's a rather significant word theologically because it's something actually that's used in the law. It's something that God promised Israel. In fact, when God was giving the Israelites the law and mentioned about going into the promised land, he said, keep the words of this covenant to do them so that you may prosper. That's the exact same word. That you may prosper in all that you do. That's Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 8. He also, if you think about Joshua, when Joshua was going in the land, he said this, Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success in wherever you go. That's the word. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous. There's the word. And then you will have success. And so Joshua reminded the Israelites that they would prosper as long as they would do all that the law commanded. If you look at uh, verse 14, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you, but in the same chapter we're looking at today, it said, David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. So David prospered not just as a military leader, but it says that he prospered in all of his ways. Verse 16 of chapter 18 says this, But all Israel and Judah loved David. He went out and came in before them. 
A little bit later in verse 30 it says, So his name was highly esteemed. What we find in this chapter is that David prospered at everything that he did. And the author chose to use that very specific word from the law because it indicated that David was prospering as a result of his love for God, his obedience to the Old Testament law, and that this prosperity was specifically God's reward to David. So this is a reflection of how God works. When you obey, when you love the Lord with all your heart, the Lord will prosper you. And so the, by using this specific word from the law, the author intends for us to see here not just that, hey, David made his own way. It was all about David. No, it's that the Lord was prospering David because the Lord was with David. And that's key. There are a lot of successful people in the world, are there not? But it's not always simply because the Lord is prospering them. And in this case, the author is trying to make it very clear that because the Lord was with David, the Lord prospered David. So he was successful in everything that he did. Do you think that parallels our life? I got to thinking about this. I think sometimes our understanding of prosperity might be a little bit warped. You know, we have within the United States here, you know, um, some Christians who are from that prosperity gospel conviction, which is that, you know, give your $1,000 tithe and the Lord will give you back five, you know, and um, or that you should never be sick, you should never be unhealthy, you know, because God promises you health and wealth and... Um, but sometimes I wonder too, you know, how do you explain to say somebody that's in North Korea or in one of the persecuted countries in the world where, where Christians are being killed by, by um, Muslims? You know, David here, um, we're going to see, was continually persecuted. And yet he prospered. Which means we might have to redefine our understanding of what it really means to prosper. It doesn't mean that God's going to make us wealthy. It doesn't mean that God's going to take away every hardship. It doesn't mean that, that we're always you know, going to have a, you know, um, more than we need or everything's going to be you know, great, right? We just have to redefine our understanding of prosperity and look at it from a spiritual lens. And in David's case here, he prospered in a number of ways, including favor among the people was one thing in Israel, while at the same time he was receiving contempt from others. But he had God's favor. He prospered in that respect. He always seemed to have what he needed. You know, um, I was studying um, another passage um, over the weekend while I was at the homeschool convention during some of the breaks where... Um, David actually finds Laban in the field and he had been taking care of his sheep and his shepherds and all that and so he, they're out there with no food and they went to, to Laban who was a very wealthy man and said, um, can you at least spare something? And the guy just treated him with contempt. you know. So David sets out and wants to kill him. And fortunately, um, the man's wife intervenes, protects David from sinning, but she brings David everything that he needs, all of his men, so God took care of him. Um, so I think we have to be careful here and not find ourselves thinking that just because we obey God, just because we do what God does, everything's great, we're supposed to prosper, that's what the Bible promises. You have to understand what prosperity really means. And it's more from a spiritual perspective. It means that God will take care of us, lead us, continue to have the right relationship with us. From there we look at David's persecution because it's not always, again, prosperity isn't always um, roses and you know smell good things and... Um, Sunshine, rainbows, and all that good stuff. David continued to face persecution. Um, 
The events of verses 6 through 9, at least, here in chapter 18, take place as soon as David and Saul return from this military campaign up in chapter 17. There's a number of things that happen. The first is that Saul becomes angry and grows suspicious of David. Look at verses 6 through 9. It says, It happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, but also the campaign mentioned above, that the women came out of the city of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Saul became very angry for this saying, displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So Saul became very suspicious of David here because of the way that the people responded. It was pretty customary at the time when men would return from battle, the women would go out and they would write songs and they would sing and dance. And that's exactly what the women of the city did here. Saul, however, is offended because they attributed more deaths to David. In other words, they gave David more prominence. You mentioned... um, thousand here for Saul and tens of thousands for David. Well, obviously, Saul, being the arrogant, proud man that he was, was offended by that, that they would ascribe more success to David than they did to him. So he immediately saw David as a threat. In fact, he said here, you know, verse uh, 8, oh, if David now has their favor, what more can he have? He'll have the kingdom. And Saul's concerned that he'll lose the kingdom to David, which is rather interesting to me because he'd already been told that anyway. You know, he already knew that was going to happen. So what does Saul do? Well, he actually tries to kill David. Not just once, but multiple times. Look at verses 10 through 30. The first one is with his spear. That's verses 10 through 11. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. You remember that Saul was tormented by a spirit from the Lord? It says evil here. Another way to probably understand that is a tormenting spirit. In other words, God sent a spirit, likely one of his messengers, to torment Saul. We're not talking about a demon here. We're talking about God sending somebody to constantly tweak on Saul's heart. It was likely a form of chastisement to get Saul to repent and to turn. And because his heart was so hard, the Lord sent a, a spirit to sort of torment him bring misery upon him, to try to get him to confess, get him to to recognize God's work. But Saul continued to refuse. And remember, he had brought David in to play a harp because that was the only, or a flute, or, or some musical instrument here, basically to sort of soothe that for him. And so David's doing his job. He's soothing Saul, or trying to, and Saul's in there raving mad back and forth, and he decides to kill David, takes this long spear, throws it, nearly pins David to the wall, and it says that he actually tried that twice. And David escapes both times. When that doesn't work, Saul decides he's got to take it up a notch. The next thing he does, he tries to have David killed by the Philistines. Look at verses 12 through 30 here. He says, Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as the commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. So what Saul actually does here is he says, well, I'm going to send him out on more military battles. Try to get him in front of the Philistines. Maybe they'll take care of him. Verse 14, David was prospering in all his ways for the Lord was with him. So the more Saul sent him out, the more military victories David had. 
When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be a vigilant or um, valiant man for uh, for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul sought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So this is a rather interesting text because it's not real clear exactly why Saul thought giving his daughter to David would somehow um, make the Philistines mad. Or somehow bring the Philistines against him. The only thing that probably makes sense here is that he was assuming that by becoming the king's son, that maybe somehow that would obligate David even further to protect the king and to go out and fight the Philistines. Now, we have to remember, this is the ravings of a madman. Saul's not really thinking clearly. David's already out there fighting. David's already out there and seeing success. But in Saul's mind, somehow, he's trying to up that pressure. When he says here that he gives him his daughter and that he wants him then to be a valiant man, somehow in Saul's mind, um, that's going to put David in more danger. Maybe because he'll take more risks. Maybe he'll go out more often against the Philistines because now he's part of Saul's family and he's going to have to protect Saul. But Saul's real hope is that it'll take David's life. That somehow that'll result in David being killed. It's interesting because there's a bit of foreshadowing there because David later in his life does that very same thing to Bathsheba's husband. Kind of interesting how the scriptures work in that respect. So Saul tries to put David in more danger, but what does David do? Well, David decides he's not going to take the king up on his offer. So David said to Saul in verse 18, Who am I and what is my life? or my father's family in Israel, that I should be the king's son-in-law. So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel as a wife instead. And so David refuses to take take Saul up on his offer, and instead um, Saul gives his daughter to somebody else. Well, Saul doesn't give up at that point, because he's got some other daughters as you would expect of a king, multiple wives and multiple children. So he tries it again, this time with another daughter, Micah. Now this time, um, he recognizes that David is in love with Micah. Micah is in love with David. There may have been some relationship going on there. We're not really sure, but it says, Now Micah, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, she thought, or he, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and high, or lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went. He and his men and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them to the full, in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw 
and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. So this now, at this place, would be his fourth attempt to kill David. Twice with a spear, once by trying to get him, in, you know, get the Philistines to somehow um, kill David with the marriage of his first daughter. But now with Michael. Saul wises up a little bit. He sees that there's something going on there. He's got a much better chance now of marrying David off to his daughter because there's an interest there. But David obviously responds that he can't do that because it's not a trivial thing. He doesn't believe he's worthy of marrying into the king's family. But he also recognizes he's a poor man and he has no dowry. A dowry is what you paid to the husband, or I mean the father of the woman you were going to marry. But David was poor. This is probably where when Saul says that Michael would be a snare to him, the word there is actually bait. Some have thought that the reason that she was a snare was because later on in, uh, when, when she actually saves David's life, it mentions having household idols. And that she had used an idol to sort of you know, put in the bed to fake David being there when Saul comes to kill him. And so some have said, oh, see, that's the snare. She's, she's an idol worshiper, and so Saul knows that, and he's really hoping that she'll trap David, and now God will be unhappy with him. But there's some, there's some problems with that, and we'll get to that when we, when we look at the idols a little bit later, in a later passage. It's more likely that she was baked. In other words, what Saul was thinking is, David's going to need a dowry. We already got that figured out. David didn't take me up on my other offer. And part of it is because he knows he's a poor man. He knows that he doesn't have what it takes to be a part of the royal family. He doesn't have any money. So, I'll come up with a scheme. I'll tell him to go out and basically embarrass and kill and maim some Philistines. And that will highly offend them. And then they'll really come out in droves and attack David and kill David. So in other words... He knew his plan was going to be, I'll tell David to go get their foreskins. And in doing that, they'll kill David. So, because David will want to marry Michael, he'll do what I ask, and that'll put him in more danger. That appears to be exactly what Saul was thinking. Well, as we can see in the story here, it doesn't work out that way, because David says, you want a hundred? I'll give you two hundred. And so he goes out and he kills 200 Philistines. And not only that, but he prospers. And every time he goes out, he prospers against the Philistines. And so Saul's out one daughter. And things are worse because now he's even more afraid of David. Because David has now proven himself again. So we find in all of this, these multiple attempts by Saul to kill David, to persecute him. And so we see that just as the author provided some clues into David's prosperity, he provides answers to why Saul persecuted David as well. Why is it there was so much hatred? Well, it says that he was afraid of David, verse 8. says, now, what more can he have but the kingdom? He dreaded the fact that David was prospering according to verse 15. But look at verses 28 through 29. It says, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus, Saul was David's enemy continually. Part of that verse says that the reason Saul was afraid of David was because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with David, but not with Saul. So part of the persecution, part of the hatred and the fear, 
was because Saul had recognized that David was walking with the Lord and he was not. That David had the Lord's favor and that he did not. Do you think we ever struggle with that a little bit? I'll be real frank. There's times where you know, you, you see other Christians that are blessed with certain things and you sit back and maybe wonder why you weren't blessed the same way. Or maybe um, you're struggling with something physically and you see God answer somebody else's prayers and heal somebody else physically, but He hasn't healed you physically. And you're wondering why. And if we're not careful, sometimes instead of just rejoicing and praising God over what He has done for others, we find ourselves... Feel like maybe God doesn't love us, or maybe that maybe we become a little bit bitter. Am I the only one that struggles with that sometimes? I don't expect you to raise your hands, um, but sometimes that's the way it works, and we become bitter and upset. And I'm not saying it necessarily leads us to persecution, but sometimes you think about how that happens with the world. You ever wonder if maybe part of the reason why, when Jesus said they would hate us, um, maybe part of the reason is because the world would see that God prospers believers. Maybe not always financially and other things, but do you think maybe deep down sometimes the world without even realizing or recognizing it, they know that they're a direct offense to the Lord and yet we're not? Do you think maybe sometimes um, the world recognizes God's work among believers but refuse to accept it and therefore we're hated? There's probably an element of that to persecution. They're blind. They don't always recognize or realize that. But just as God prospers His people, just as He prospered David, oftentimes there's persecution as a result. And we're not free from that. And just because we're promised that God will prosper us doesn't mean that He promises us that He'll eliminate the persecution, I think, of the Apostle Paul. You know, If you ask Paul if he had a prosperous life, I think he would give you a thumbs up. Does it look like he did? Um, from a, mil- uh, from a um, ministry standpoint, absolutely. From a heart standpoint and his relationship with God, absolutely. But he faced persecution. Serious, significant persecution. That's a reflection of the gospel. That's what we were promised. You know, Jesus himself said, this is what's going to happen. So he promised that the Lord would prosper us, but he also promised that we would be persecuted by those outside. And that's exactly what we see in David here. The last thing I want to look at the third P, if you will, David's protection. So we have his prosperity, we have the persecution, but then we also have David's protection. Saul continues to kill or try to kill David with another four attempts in this chapter alone. But God's protective hand, though not mentioned directly until the end, is actually the dominant theme here. So there's, I'm going to just say there's four protective acts, if you will, here. Take a look at verses... um, 1 through 7 of chapter 19, it says, Now Saul told Jonathan his son and his servants to put David to death. But uh, but Jonathan, Saul's son, greatly delighted in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, is seeking to put you to death. Now, therefore, please be on your guard in the morning and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. That was part of their covenant. That was part of David or Saul or Jonathan. I'm sorry, Jonathan's promise to David that he would help protect him. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life in his hand and struck the Philistine. 
And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was with his presence as formerly. When there was a war, David went out and fought the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul and he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. So what we find here is that Saul attempts to kill or wants to kill David so he basically tells all of his men go out and do it, including Jonathan. This man was not thinking right. He knew that Jonathan and David were close. Um, But again, raving mad at this point. Um, So he tells Jonathan and all the men, go out and kill David, but the Lord intervenes through Jonathan. And Saul promises not to kill David, but we find the very next verse he decides to do it again. So we have this first instance where the Lord protected David through his relationship with Jonathan. Do you think that covenant between Jonathan, do you think that the Lord knitting Jonathan's heart to David was just by accident? No, it was was an uh, an aspect of protection um, to protect him from Saul. The second attempt here is Saul's spear again. Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, There was war again. David went out and fought with the Philistines and defeated them with a great slaughter so that they fled before him. Now there was an evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand and David was playing the harp with his hand. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with the spear but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he he stuck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. So Saul makes another attempt at the spear, the first two. He didn't learn his lesson. And so again, Saul is being tormented by this spirit from the Lord and decides to take David's life again. And once again, maybe through David's own craftiness and paying attention, he knew what happened last time, was able to protect himself. And so God delivers David one more time. What about a third attempt? Look at verses 11 through 17. Then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him. You notice here that Saul's attempts are getting much more bold and much more public. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be put to death. So Michael let David down through a window and went out and fled and escaped. Michael took the household idol and laid it on the bed and put a uh, quilt of goat's hair, see if you can appreciate that, goat's hair on his head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him to me on his bed that I may put him to death. When the messengers entered, behold, the household idol was on the bed with the quilt of goat's hair on its head. So Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael said to Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I put you to death? Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah. So what do we have here? Saul, again, makes another bold attempt. It's getting much more public at this point. He's not afraid of what people are going to think. So he goes and he sends these men to camp outside in front of David's living quarters. Makes his... Intent known, he's going to kill David. But Michael does something rather interesting. It says she takes the household idol here. She lets David out the back, tells David to go, and then takes this household idol. Now, this is what I kind of mentioned about how 
some thought that that was the snare, that Saul knew that she was an idol worshiper and somehow this would lead David into idol worship. The problem is that the text nowhere else in the Bible indicates that David had household idols. In fact, you would think that that, God would have a real problem with that, with David. There's no indication of that. What's interesting is the word that's used here as household idols um, was used in a variety of ways. Usually when it referred to idols, it referred to these small little idols. In fact, we've got instances in the... the, um, Bible, where they put them into small pouches. But the word was also used for large statues. In fact, a fairly common practice in the ancient Near East was for wives to have statues made of their husbands. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) So, what's like, what's probably happening here is we've got an, we've got a, bust of Dustin in the bed there, right? (laughs) What we basically have most likely is that um, when they came, what she did was she let David out and then she went and probably got one of the larger statues, quite possibly a statue of David in the house. Now think about that. If you're trying to hide somebody in bed, does it make sense you're taking this little tiny teraphim, little tiny idol that's about this big? Nobody's going to think that's a full-size human being, and that's why it's unlikely that these are household idols in the sense. That's why some translations don't translate it as household idol, like the NASB. They just translate it as image. Because most likely what it is is probably a statue, a fairly large statue. Maybe it's just a bust, but it could also be a full-size statue, maybe even of her husband. She placed that in the bed, took some goat's hair, made a wig out of it real quick, put that on the head. Sunglasses on. Put sunglasses on the head, because that would match Dustin, you know? Weekend at Bernie's. There you go, weekend at Bernie's, yeah. I was thinking Ferris Bueller's day off, you know. <laughs> yeah, a little, yep, yep. So that's basically probably what's happening here. Um, it's likely not a false god, an idol that she's, she's using here. So we have our third attempt by Saul here, actually third in this path, this small passage here, of Saul trying to kill David again, and it just doesn't work. Why? God's protected David once again. And again, the text doesn't explicitly say it was David, or I mean, say it was God that did it. We're going to find that out a little bit later. But ultimately, God's hand is at work here, protecting David. Remember, this is the most powerful man in the kingdom, Saul, with a huge army. And he's sending these guys out now to kill David. He knows where he lives. And yet David is able to escape. The last time is in verses 18 through 24. It's certainly not the last time Saul tried to kill him, but it's the last time in our passage today. But verses 18 through 24. Now David fled and escaped and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at Nioth. It was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth and Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. But when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also began to prophesy. When it was told Saul, he sent another mes- or other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well that is in Sekiu, and he uh, asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, Behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. He proceeded there in Nioth of Ramah, and the Spirit of God came also upon him, so that he went along prophesying continually until he came to Nioth and Ramah. He also stripped off his clothes, that's the outer garments, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay down naked. Basically, again, just the outside coverings are gone. All day and all night, therefore they say, is Saul among the prophets. This is kind of remarkable here. 
So Saul said he's going to take it, really take matters into his own hand. So now he sends these messengers out. He knows where David is. He sends these guys out to kill him. And these messengers, as soon as they get there, they start prophesying, which means the Spirit of God came upon them, and they start prophesying, speaking God's word. Saul hears about it. Oh. Sends out a second batch. Same thing happens to the second batch. Sends out a third batch. Same thing happens with the third batch. You would think that Saul at this point would go, hmm, that's not working. Every time I send these guys out, they start prophesying. They're on God's side. So he goes himself. And just as you might expect, he gets there and he starts to prophesy himself. What's ironic about this, and this whole passage is filled with these ironic things. What's ironic about this is the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. But when the Spirit of the Lord comes back onto Saul, what does it do? Saul begins to, to basically prophesy on God's behalf. I cannot imagine for a second that that made Saul very happy. Do you think that probably irritated him even more? Yeah, his heart is heart. So this is probably the clearest indicator of God's protected hand here because he now takes the Holy Spirit and descends the Holy Spirit upon all three groups of these messengers who then prophesy. Now, in all likelihood, what is, what is prophecy? You guys know what it is, right? What does it mean to prophesy? Speaking on God's behalf, right? It's God's word. In all likelihood, we don't know what they were prophesying, but in all likelihood, it had something to do with the situation and with David and God speaking his word through these people, including through Saul. So we see that the Lord, at least in these four instances here, protected David over and over. No matter how many times, I think there's, if I remember right, there's six or eight attempts just in the passage we looked at today of Saul trying to kill David. And yet every single time, the Lord protects David. Takes care of him. I mentioned there's a ton of irony, and we'll kind of wrap it up with, with these things here. There's a ton of irony in the past. I'm going to mention them just because I think it helps us to appreciate the text. David is a man after God's own heart, and he prospers. The irony is that that prosperity causes Saul to stiffen his resolve, harden his heart, and then ultimately persecute David. And that doesn't always fit our, our, our narrative, if you will, today. We think we should, be, you know, we should prosper, but then we're persecuted. There's some irony there, but again, it's a reflection of, of the Christian life. You know, we will prosper, but we're going to be persecuted. We also see God's presence with David through the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of approval and favor where God sends a spirit to torment Saul, which is a sign of disfavor. Even here where the spirit comes upon Saul and begins to prophesy, that's actually a sign of disfavor in Saul's life. Because Saul refused to honor God, and so God uses Saul to honor himself in spite of that. And so you get that irony there. Um, even though the Spirit departs from Saul as a sign of God's judgment and disfavor against him, it returns to thwart his plan. Um, Saul's plan to use Michael as a snare, as bait, actually ends up saving David's life. You see the irony in that? Can you imagine Saul going, I did it again. You know? That was kind of dumb of me. I should have known. Michael loves him. How did I not think that she would... Turn her back on me and favor David, her husband. See the same thing with Jonathan. The irony there is that Jonathan, the king's own son, saves David from the king. And so the the author built in all this irony here for us to appreciate what's going on in the text. It just helps us to, to, I guess, recognize and see the Word of God as an amazing piece of literary and art. I want to close with this. 
and, and you probably get tired of me saying this, but we have these themes that keep coming up in the text. And today, obviously, the, the theme is heavy on the concept of protection. That we have this man after God's own heart, this humble, humble individual, David, who loves the Lord, and, and through all these persecutions so far, he's never raised his hand against Saul. We're going to see that he has opportunity to in some future texts. And even then, doesn't. So there's this man getting, I mean, he's innocent and he's, he loves the Lord and, and he's seen God do all these amazing things and yet he's just getting beat up by this king. And yet David never raises his hand to protect himself. But God does. You think it's a reminder to us? In the text I was studying over the weekend, um, when, when Abigail... Um, comes to David because her husband was an idiot and inflames David. And so David sets out to kill him and all of his family. Had David done that, it would have been sin. But when Abigail goes to him, one of the things she does is she reminds him, David, the Lord fights your battles. And she finishes by saying, and I'll summarize it and paraphrase here, I don't want you, when you do become king, to regret the fact that you sinned. And she, through that she reminds him, David, you don't have to do this because the Lord is your protector. Don't raise your hand. Let the Lord protect you. I think we ever forget that? That it's the Lord who fights our battles? I know I do. I, you know, I, I shared some stuff about the last few weeks with, with work and whatnot. And it's a battle sometimes to not want to just reach out and... You know? Um... I had something interesting happen that was a good, good reminder to me. Um, one of the things that... Um, I've got a, a rather difficult relationship with one of my managers. And um, he doesn't like a lot of information. And I send information anyway. Because, I, it, to be real frank, it covers my bottom. <laughs> and so one of the things that um, my boss challenged me on was, I just, you just send him way too much information. And he doesn't want that. And that's just, you shouldn't be doing that. And one of the examples he gave me was budget information. It's my job to provide budget information for all of my managers. Well, this particular manager doesn't like to read that stuff. But I send it anyway because he needs it. Well, that's one of the things my boss kind of hit me up on. That was just way too... You provide him with way too much information. You shouldn't have done that. And, and I just want to yell and scream like, Are you kidding me? Really? That's my job. I'm supposed to do Every other manager that I have thanks me for the detail. And now I'm getting you know, busted because of this. But you know what? Just kept my mouth shut. Well, this week, I was asked to order some copiers for that manager by my boss. And so I sent the manager information. Here's the cost on the copiers. And his response back to me was that basically, that's just a lot more than you gave me before. I ended it with, I'm absolutely convinced that that's just much higher than what you gave me before. Well, I took out my spreadsheet. It was exactly the same number. And I responded back. It's on the spreadsheet. Line 8. This is exactly what I provided before. Now I looked at that as vindication. Simply meaning that I could have fought the battle. The Lord found some way in His humor, if you will, in His um, own way to justify that what I did wasn't wrong. Now it's a puny example. It's a goofy example. But... It was a good reminder to me as I was thinking about this text this morning that, you know, it's just funny because the Lord fights our battles. I don't have to stand up and justify myself as much as I really, really want to. I've whined and complained to some other folks, but I don't need to justify myself. 
You know, the Lord will take care of it because He fights our battles. It's the same thing for us. He may prosper us. We may be persecuted just like David. And when that happens, the Lord protects us. He's the one that fights our battles for us, just like David. It may not always end exactly as we want, but the Lord fights our battles for us. 